Hi, and welcome to Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. I'm Jeremy Wartzman, and I'm here with my co-host, Laura Chan Baker and Bianca Bramham. Hello. Hello. Here at Jackie Winter, our roles put us right in the center of the action in between client and creative, so we get to see all sides of the process. Every week, we come together in the Treehouse of Horrors, that is our recording studio, and dissect three different links that we've come across during our recent internet travels. We use these as a jumping off point to look at what's shaping the issues, processes, happenings, and ideas across the creative industries today. This week, we're going through our open tabs and we'll be discussing board games, the end of advertising, and virtual product placement. As we do once a month, we're taking our monthly visit to New York, where we are joined by North American managing agent and producer Bianca Bramham. Bianca, welcome back. Hey. What have we missed in New York since we last spoke? I actually spent the weekend in Allentown, Pennsylvania. So Ooh. I am well rested and ready there? to go. I was just there for a five-year-old's birthday and a three-year-old's birthday. So that was a bit of fun. Oh, classic. Yeah. Full on adulting. Yes. Yeah, stopped at TGI Fridays for dinner, which is... Was, oh, geez. <laughs> wow. What happened to you, Bianca? Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> What's happened? <laughs> Slow down. <laughs> Jeremy, how are you doing? I'm, I'm getting by with one hour of sleep, which I, I, we just discussed before. And it hey, turns out we How good are kids? Sorry? How good are kids? No, no. This <laughs> it wasn't is, them. No, it wasn't them. It's just kind of, you know... My my raging anxiety disorder is just kind of keeping uh, me up at night. Yeah, I know that well. Yeah, there yeah. you go. <laughs> How about you, Laura? Yeah, also feeling pretty dodgy, <laughs> but hey, I got my radio posy vibes on. We, we, we pull it together remarkable for show. the show. Yeah. The veneer. Is they just, tell you, is, if you just smile while you're talking, people fantastic. think you're happy. I know. We're, we're <laughs> smiling all, real damn hard. We're, we're really, really unhappy. My cheeks. <laughs> <laughs> we are going to kick on, though, because what makes everyone happy? A bit of advertising and a bit of games as well. Oh, my God. I was so happy when I saw this come up. I'm so glad you picked it, Laura. Tell us about the first link of this week. It's a Kickstarter project. Where did you yes. find it? What okay. is it? So, yes, I, as I'm kicking off today with some real hardline debate, <laughs> something like deeply controversial, newsworthy. No, uh, I'm kidding. I want to talk about a funny board game. Last week, one of our artists, Chris Phillips, he slacked us a link to a Kickstarter for a board game called AdQuest. And uh, in the game, you play an advertising creative who's attempting to create a portfolio of finished ads and holy dooly, it is painfully, soul-crushingly real. The whole thing, it started as a bit of a joke between two ad creatives that are based in New York, Adam Samara and Michael Kamara. I like that their names are Yeah, Yeah, I know, right? Just a happy bonus. But eventually, yeah, this joke between them evolved into, into a real game that they prototyped and played with their colleagues and now they're, they're trying to fund on Kickstarter. And the game is all about navigating account teams, clients, creative directors, focus groups. As they describe it, it's blackmail, backstabbing, and favoritism. It's working 70-hour weeks only to get rebriefed and start from the beginning. <laughs> so um, the game itself, there are five grueling sections of the game, starting with concepting, the process of coming up with dozens of ideas for a single project. These ideas are mercilessly cut down by creative directors, strategists, and account managers. Then you move on to client reviews. These are your big meetings with the clients where your strongest ideas are put through yet another ringer after many, many, many of these meetings, an idea is approved for the next phase third stage is testing. Even though the client has approved your ad, they still need to be reassured that the masses will like it too. Here, your idea is paraded before a group of random strangers who will poke holes in it for $75 and free diet soda. Fourth stage, production. Cameras, celebrities, directors, egos, and budgets. Production is where your idea comes to life and it's equal parts glamour and train wreck. Tread carefully. So true. You're almost to the finish line. <laughs> and the final, fifth and final stage is post-production. Once you've got the pieces, you have to put it together with editing, sound design, color correction, 
and final approvals. Don't get too comfy. You're never done until it's in your portfolio. And uh, along the way, you encounter all sorts of advertising situations that play out on a daily basis from uh, incoherent client feedback to rogue directors. You're pestered with menial tasks like building presentation desks, decks and uh, submitting timesheets. Sometimes you'll catch a break and even actually make some progress. Sometimes. And of course, it wouldn't be advertising if rebriefs didn't haunt you at every single turn. In gameplay, rebriefs send you back to the very beginning of the board and it's so relatable. I do can't not pass, go and do not take $200. I know. So it's like this kind of amazing mashup of like life and Monopoly meets kind of real painful life. And the game actually looks amazing. Sadly, there's actually only four days left on the Kickstarter and they're pretty far from their uh, $22,000 goal. But I hope it gets made somehow because I'd love to play this, even though like I'd essentially just be playing a board game version of my regular life. <laughs> I just, I don't know. I just think like, fuck, this is funny. And I wish I'd thought of it first. Yeah, it's an amazing, I mean, it's such a great concept. I mean, and the the rewards are great as well. If you go to the top level, you can get custom illustrated kind this of This is the Kickstarter characters. rewards for yeah, if you the, contribute. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I don't know, you know, hopefully the thousands of listeners here, if they could all kind of kick in and make it, it's a great time for it to come out. Great Christmas gift, I think. But um, I'm really into kind of this whole, you know, board game and game resurgence at the moment. Your I, thumbs up last week. Yeah, my thumbs up last, well, it was a tabletop game, actually. Oh, a, a, tabletop a, bit, game. a bit different. Last um, time I was but, in yeah, your like, kitchen, Jeremy, we played a tabletop game, some sort of card game. Rhino Hero, the most amazing <laughs> game in the world. Is so good. Rhino Hero. Rhino Hero is a, just an ingenious card game. It w- it should have been it's my thumbs up ages ago, but it's kind of like it's almost kind of like it, it, the whole thing is flat. It's flat cards, and you build kind of walls and floors, and you, it's kind of like you have to build the power of it and like move this. Have little you played rhino card names? Up. Yes, it's my favorite I, tabletop game. Codenames is so good. Codenames is so good. We've got to get some for the office. Side note. But yeah, this is amazing. I love more than anything, and I think people might have this vibe for me anyway. Anything that starts as a joke and becomes reality is just my favorite thing in the world. And this is the epitome of that. Well, it's it's not the first time advertising and board games have um, intersected. And actually, I just remember this as you were talking. And now, do you know Adam Ferrier? Yeah. Yeah. So he is the founder of an agency called Thinkerbell at the moment. Formerly, I don't remember where he was at before. Cummins Apartments in Melbourne. Cummins Partners, right. A, a pretty big name in the in the industry. And I didn't realize this, but he was actually a psychologist. And he used to work for Saatchi and Saatchi. And in 2003, they released a, their own kind of board game, which was a card game called, it was called The Analyst. I'm going to post a link to our show notes. And it's super interesting. It was kind of like a, it just kind of, it's kind of like a game in, kind of like a precursor to Cards Against Humanity. Way. It was like a card-based game where everyone kind of has to kind of talk about what they would do in kind of a certain situation. But I found this link from 2003 where he's talking about board games being part of a trend. He says to return to local communities that take part in pub trivia nights. And basically, yeah, he was asked to come up with new product ideas while he was at Saatchi and Saatchi, and he came up with this game. And he said, I've always been interested in how adults interact. I wanted to develop a board game which used psychological techniques uh, to take what I had learned on the couch into a dinner party experience. And I think... It's amazing that he had that kind of insight so long ago, I think in in some respects a bit before his time. But I definitely think there's this whole idea of board games as a way to get people connecting. Um, Yeah, and for adults to sort of act as kids again, I think there's a nice element there of like getting people to be really, really playful in a way that adults are not often encouraged to be some of the rules and thinking that go into these games are just amazing. I mean, they're staggering. Like if you look, I mean, these, these kind of card games and other kind of games, they look deceptively so simple, but like even something like code names, you have to read the instructions like for a good half hour to. Well, I was just thinking about like, because there's nothing worse than a game that where the rules and the gameplay doesn't actually hold up. Like there's just kind of, I don't know, like either it's too easy or it's too hard. Like there's a lot of actual thinking and planning that has to go into making a game 
work well and to be able to play it more than once. You know, it's certain, like sometimes with Cards Against Humanity, I'm like, if you played it a few times, then it's not funny anymore because you know all the cards. You're like, mm, yeah. You know, and I mean, this might suffer from that, but it's, I love this idea. And Jeremy, what is truly staggering to me is how you have managed to pull some discussion out of my very light and fluffy link this week. No, no, it's not light and fluffy at all. It is my pleasure, Lara, and to move on to the next link, maybe with a bit more substance. This is something that I, I don't am- know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> this is something that I'm bringing to you from the conversation, which is a site that I saw for the first time when we had Jess Lilly on our podcast, and it's um yeah, I had kind of mixed feelings kind of about the site. I don't remember kind of where I actually found this, but again, it's been in my open tabs for a while, such as our namesake of this segment of the podcast. And the title here is Advertising is Obsolete. Here's why it's time to end it. Speaking of, you know, advertising games and everything else, all advertising, it's a big advertising related show today. In this piece, it's written by Ramsey Woodcock, who's an assistant professor of law at the University of Kentucky. He pretty much, this is kind of more of an abstract of a 74 page article he wrote for the Yale Law Journal, basically kind of saying that, you know, if there's one thing that the internet has made it easy for consumers to access without the help of advertising its information and especially information about products. And if the only justification for advertising is that it informs, then advertising is now seriously obsolete. And not only that, um, it could be counted as anti-competitive um, in courts and things like that. So basically, he, he makes the argument, he makes two kind of arguments. The first one kind of saying that, well, advertising remains so common today, because it, not because it informs people, but actually because it persuades people. And looking at things of how, I guess there was you know, foreign intervention and things like the election using kind of the using advertising platforms, you know, he makes a case that, you know, advertising is potentially dangerous as well, kind of as a medium. And the, but the one thing that I was really interested that was not brought up in this whole piece was kind of my second adjunct link, which is how how different cities have been kind of tackling this and kind of banning billboards as well in in, in the same way or kind of re, really kind of just reapproaching how their public space is kind of being used. So yeah, I won't get in too much into the the legal argument, which is kind of he, he I think he spends probably more time on you know, talking about how a consumer is effectively, you know, cajoled into buying an advertised product rather than the substitute the consumer would have purchased without advertising. But um, this Guardian piece as well, which I'm kind of linking to here too, he talks about how in 2007, Sao Paulo removed 15,000 billboards, many of which were replaced by street art. The mayor, Gilberto Casab, implemented the clean city law, labeling outdoor adverts a form of visual pollution. And in a single year, they removed 15,000 billboards and 300,000 oversized storefront signs. And there were, I mean, that's kind of the the case that I've heard the most of, but this article is fascinating in terms of all the other examples that it gives. Um, in 2009, in Chennai, India, they banned the erection of billboards. Several U.S. states have um, a billboard free. In 2011, Paris set out to reduce the number of ad hoardings by a third, and earlier this year, Tehran replaced all of its 1,500 advertising billboards with art for kind of 10 days. So yeah, it's like it's it's really interesting to read that this is kind of being kind of taken seriously. And there's also a really great quote from David Ogilvy that I had never read before. Um, Love yeah, this. Everyone. <laughs> so he said, this is in 1963, Ogilvy, the, the man, the man himself, says, man is at his vilest when he erects a billboard. When I retire from Madison Avenue, I'm going to start a secret society of mass vigilantes who will travel around the world on silent motorcycles, chopping down posters at the dark of the moon. I don't have any context for why that was written, but I, I did. <laughs> it's pretty phenomenal. But yeah, it's the, the piece of the conversation is very kind of academic. It's kind of more like, well, 
you know, like, yes, advertising is obsolete, but it doesn't kind of give any kind of, this was my kind of issue with the pieces that we were talking about with Jess. It doesn't kind of show, you know, how it could potentially look and be any different. And what I like about the Guardian piece, it actually kind of shows what people have done. And I think there's this whole thing is like, well, no, advertising kind of needs to kind of be there, needs to kind of be this backbone of how we kind of get everything else. Like, how are we going to have our free services if there's not advertising? And I think it's it's interesting that one of these councils in the UK says it could balance its books without billboards. And that's kind of one of the big arguments for outdoor advertising is that it actually kind of needs to be there to provide kind of money to councils and other kind of these public spaces. But the mayor's office in one English town says it used to earn £470,000 a year from street ads, and it was set to drop to around £105,000 in 2015. But the city makes up for its lost revenue by cutting entertainment expenses and councillors' allowances. Mm -hmm. Ooh, So, you know, it goes all the way to the top. But I guess, yeah, the, the bottom line here is that while these kind of bans you know, effectively can sometimes clean up what ostensibly is our obvious kind of visual landscape. Brands are kind of coming in to advertise in many new ways, which we'll kind of talk about in your link next, Bianca. But I'm just curious because it, it is something that has been done. And it, even though in Sao Paulo, it's kind of creeping back in kind of different ways, especially because different outdoor companies have contracts on these spots. You know, do you think it could work here in Australia or the US? Bianca, I'm curious to hear from you because, yeah, it's such a ubiquitous part of America. Could it work or how could it work? Banning do you see outdoor it advertising? Well, yeah. Or kind of, you know, replacing it with art. We, yeah. We've kind of, one of our artists, Adriana Picker, worked on a project um, where they were displaying her art on kind of phone boxes mm. on digital display. So, I mean, there has been some steps towards it. You know, I was trying so hard last night to imagine what life would be like, especially in a city like New York without outdoor advertising. But you're right. It is such an ingrained part of American life. And like, I'm not going to lie, like most advertising is shit and it's more of a visual pollutant than any, anything of any value. But the thought of being surrounded by absolutely no outdoor advertising, like felt weirdly dystopian, which is weird, but uh, it's like, it is, a, I guess it's a bit of a balancer because I, Funnily enough, watched the first episode of that new Netflix series, Maniac, last night. Have you guys seen yes, that? Yes, I wanted to mention that. <laughs> no, you haven't watched watch it. it. Well, anyway, the, it kind of like has really sort of like Blade Runner esque digital billboards that kind of they feel somehow more aggressive and opp oppressive compared to kind of what I walk down the streets and see in New York City. So I cannot imagine. I mean, I think like especially in a place like New York. The one area that I could not imagine not having advertising. And, you know, they do try and replace it with kind of like, like big pieces of public art, but I just don't enjoy the public art as much as I do the advertising. And, and for me, that's in the subway. There's this kind of trend, you know, that's kind of over the last sort of couple of years where a lot of subway advertising is either really incredible trendy illustration that's really nice to look at or, or photography that's really great to look at or it's it's funny writing and it it's always like a bit of it's something to look at when you're on the subway and it's kind of interesting and it's a bit of a conversation starter and you know New York in particular like you are introduced to a lot of like these kind of very sort of very interesting new apps and things like that through subway advertising and I just I just like, I never enjoy the public art as much as I do the advertising because I think the advertising in the subway in particular often reflects pop culture and like interesting things that are more interesting to talk about than say a poem or a piece of commissioned art. 
Interesting. Well, the Outdoor Media Center, a, a British trade association, would agree with you as well. And in their brochure, they say people love outdoor advertising because of the way it entertains and amuses, because it brings a smile to the dreariest of race <laughs> between cockfosters and Sounds Piccadilly. Sounds like someone with uh, financial <laughs> interest in this. I think. I think no, be the reason. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say. I think that there is like it is very cluttered, and it is there is a lot of advertising that is awful and and visually. A pollutant. But I mean, I think that's why you have companies like Colossal Media that do hand painted billboards, or you have these like epic subway takeovers, which are really kind of like rich visuals, which, you know, is like the, the trendiest, like, like illustration style or photography style of, of the time to try and cut through all of this bullshit. But do you think that would be your? Do you think that's your opinion because you work in the industry? Yeah, because it's kind of like a, re- a reflection of your life in that way. <laughs> a little, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to tell. Well, what about you? Yeah, I mean, well, B, the reason I wanted to bring up Maniac was not because of the billboards, but because of um, Ad oh. Buddy, this thing that they have in the show, which I think is just it's. But I think it's amazing, and I actually don't. I, I think it's such an interesting concept, Jeremy. You haven't seen it, and this is not ruining anything for you. I promise. It's okay. like the first thing in the show. But the whole idea is that like you can pay for things, whether it's like cigarettes or a train ticket or anything your bills by basically selling yourself to an ad buddy where like a human follows you around and reads ads to you that is like specific to you and so they just like a human pop-up that you can't that you can't close just follows you around so like you might buy a train ticket with that and then they'll come with you on the train and the whole time that but it's kind of like a it's an amazing concept you've got to watch this show but yeah i mean jeremy like you said you know like some of the other conversation articles we've looked at on this show the piece does leave a, a fairly large amount of things untouched and i'm up for the idea of proposing an ad free world but yeah what replaces it how do we fund everything that's currently funded by advertising as you said the author also wrote this like 74 page article for the yale law journal and guess what i read it (laughs) (laughs) well okay okay so it's really bloody footnotes inside exactly so it's really only like 32 pages long because oh no what's that 37 pages long because yeah half of each page is footnotes and i didn't read the footnotes but yeah look i mean whilst it was it was interesting i definitely had some it definitely had some very valid points uh, around why advertising is harmful in many ways, but it it, def- it really failed to clearly outline a solution, or, or so I thought anyway. And I mean, I understand the argument. I mean, they're talking about how in the 1950s, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, looked at potentially, this is when like uh, TV advertising was becoming a thing, and they looked at potentially sort of banning advertising because, well, because of the potential harm to consumers and, ha- and the anti-competitive nature of, of advertising, how it can sort of cause monopolies, blah, blah, blah. And they decided to keep it at that point because of this sort of informative argument that advertising serves a purpose to inform people of what the products are, what they do, how to get them, what the price is, et cetera, right? And so I understand the argument that the author makes, you know, that in this current age where information about anything and everything is so freely accessible online that, you know, the idea that advertising needs to exist as a way to inform people about products and services is, is pretty outdated. But still, I kind of don't understand like how they purport that anyone start up any sort of company or product or service without being able to communicate to the world that it exists and, and what it does. And, you know, in that case, okay, would we rely on editorial, which would then essentially just be advertorial. And then even on that note, how the hell would we even fund things like editorial? And like, what about TV and film? And so many creative endeavors are funded heavily by the by the big bucks that come with advertising, for example, almost all of the work that we do with our artists. You know, these people can afford to be artists for a living because of advertising. And, and, and I guess it, it is a really interesting thing to think about what can replace that. I'm not saying it can't be replaced, but this article and the, the, the Fuller article didn't really 
explain that. And I think as well, Jeremy, as you raised in one of your notes to us, you know, if you do ban advertising of all forms, what's to stop companies from finding much, much sneakier ways of, of spooking their Well, they, al- they already have. They that's, already that's have. That's the thing that yeah. I like about advertising is that at least you know it's It's explicit. Yes, yeah. it's explicit. Well, if, you, if you're curious as to what your world might look like without advertising, especially digital advertising, I actually stumbled this week through one of my Slack communities on a Kickstarter for... IRL glasses, glasses that block screens. So this is a Kickstarter for a pair of glasses that allow you to live in real life and see everything except screens. So it just completely blocks out. So if you're if you are looking at a screen, it's just like that's I'll post seems like a notes. really hard way to live life. Screens are useful in a lot of senses. Yeah. <laughs> like I like to be able to see my like my watch and my computer and you know the screen at the airport telling me when my flight's coming and stuff. But yeah, the other thing I thought about was like, you know, what about products and services that actually are really helpful to people and might not reach those people otherwise? Like, I don't know, perhaps a company that offers home delivered meals to, to elderly or, or sick people and someone like that might not be in a position to receive that kind of information by word of mouth or, or to search for it themselves online. And I, you know, overall, I think it's a lovely utopian idea, but I'm, I'm fairly incredulous about banning advertising as a whole. As you pointed out before, Jeremy, you know, quite a few cities around the world have removed or banned all outdoor advertising, as you said, including several US states. I mentioned Hawaii, which I didn't even notice while I was there. Like it didn't occur to me that there was no outdoor, outdoor advertising. I, I feel like there was. I'm very confused. But, you know, also outdoor advertising is still a pretty tiny portion of advertising. And in today's landscape, I don't think that that is that threatening a move for advertisers who probably rely more on things like online advertising than anything else at at this stage. But I mean, yeah, as you said as well, just outdoor advertising does sort of help fund city infrastructure in a lot of ways. And like tram and bus and train stops are often paid for with advertising money and it can be a really important revenue for several councils. Please don't take away the subway advertising. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, there's a really I mean, long... provided that that's actually funding the subway. There's a long and there's a complicated relationship between private interests and public services and untangling that would be no easy feat. And as you said, even that famous example of Sao Paulo is not so straightforward. Like they introduced that clean city law, but they've since sort of begun to gradually reintroduce advertising. I mean, albeit in a more controlled manner, it is more organized and it's better planned, but it's there. So clearly they encountered reasons why a totally ad-free public space wasn't feasible. And I guess another thought this raised for me, and this might be a bit contentious, the author does speak on this within the full Yale piece. It's the idea that that even value that's only perceived, and I, I mean, what I mean by that is that it's not actually a real product benefit that makes it a better choice than another, but the the lifestyle branding sort of gives the product a certain status or aura. That's still value. Like one of the author's main arguments is that, as you said, by convincing consumers to buy a certain advertised product, product over another, we're harming the consumer because they're manipulated into buying a product that the consumer doesn't really prefer. And that, you know, there's no correlation between the company that has the catchiest slogan or the most famous celebrity endorsement and the company that sells the better product. And they cite a study in which was shown that consumers can't distinguish between Coke and Pepsi in a blind testing, but Coke's market share is double that of Pepsi. Whatever. I, would, I did the fucking taste test. I got Pepsi. <laughs> I would argue oh, conversely. Yeah, you can totally tell the difference between Coke and Pepsi. I would argue conversely that often what people are buying, particularly with sort of general material goods like this, isn't the better product, but it is the association. Like deep down in a lot of cases, people don't want to buy the better product. They want to buy the status and lifestyle markers that come with being a consumer of a certain brand. And advertising gives the consumption of the product social meaning. Like for example, we know from advertising that Louis Vuitton is a sign of luxury. And, you know, in turn, that increases the pleasure that a buyer takes in owning a Louis Vuitton bag. And I'm not saying that's a good thing. And of course, advertising 
feeds heavily into that and breeds that. But I also think that it's something that's potentially kind of hardwired into humans, at least humans of today, and that maybe it's naive to propose that people aren't playing the same game that advertisers are or that, or that this nature would disappear without advertising. So, you, yeah, you opened up a, a pretty rich vein over there that, yeah, that could go into a lot more kind of topics. Well, they talk about it a lot in that Yale piece. I but think- they talk, they say, they, they argue that the harm it does consumers is still outweighs that kind of, they call it like this complementary benefit. But yeah, I mean, like the main reason I read that full Yale piece is because I really wanted to know if the author had provided any thoughts on how much, you know, uh, of of the media would be sort of funded in the absence of advertising. I mean, at one point, I the author says that, I hated this, since consumers already pay for Google and Facebook with their personal data, it's not too much to ask that they pay with their money instead. But I think that's bullshit because personal data, irrelevant of the social or emotional costs of which they are very real, in the economic sense of the word, those personal data is free. Anyone can give away their personal data. Everyone has personal data. Not everyone has or can afford to give away their money for services that have become integral to our lives. Ooh. Well, yeah, I, I think <laughs> it's, it's because advertising is our lifeblood in, in so many ways. Like, yeah, I think it's something that I'm kind of really on the fence on. And you make some really great points there, Laura, where that, sorry. I got one more. Really? Yeah. Okay. Last point. Uh, last point. Okay. In the full Yale piece, the author suggests that um, if under an advertising ban, consumers proved unwilling to pay for media services, which I think that to an extent they probably would because we're so accustomed to getting most things for free. There's no reason that these networks and publications should die, they say, you know, and, and, and argues that public funding would instead be essential, right? So that public funding, you know, it already exists for some radio, television, the arts, which, you know, if you're in Australia, you know, is fairly scarce, but it does exist. And the author argues that increasing this funding would not be difficult in a fiscal sense because there would be a ready source of funds available. The savings of companies no longer allowed to spend on advertising. And they suggest that the government could tax companies at their historical rate of advertising expenditure and transfer those funds to the media outlets. And this to me- that'll work. Yeah. It just has so many issues, like not least of which would be the weight of like government control over the media, which is already- an issue. And I mean, look, I'm not saying by any means that I think advertising is free of guilt or even a good thing at all. For a large portion, I hate advertising. Uh, I'm just, I think, more cynical about how we might go about any other system at this point. Well, you could go and move to Celebration, Florida. Do you know about Celebration? I don't, but what a name. I know, well, it's the it's the <laughs> town that basically is next to Disney World in Florida, where it's, it's supposed to have recreated the 19, like a 1950s town completely, and there's no advertising there at all. Mm-hmm. All the houses kind of look the same, and yeah, you can Are go. Are women like, allowed to like work and vote? I haven't, I haven't looked <laughs> I too closely into it, but that's definitely an option. Well, Laura, thanks for digging into that piece. I re- I didn't get into to the Yale piece, but yeah, we will you know put- me. I I might have skim read it. But yeah, we'll put the links up to all of these things in our show notes as we do every week before we move on to our last link. Bianca, our last link of the week is all your honor. This is very, I think, related to everything that we've talked about up top. So tell us a bit about this. VentureBeat is a new site that hasn't been featured on the podcast before. Mm. Where did you find this? And tell us all about the horribly named Riff Rife. Rife. Riff 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 Riff. I mean, VentureBeat, honestly, I'd never come across it before, but this article just happened to pop up on my LinkedIn feed. Speaking about advertising, that the sneaky little advertising that needs to go away, <laughs> those like promoted messages that oh. you get 
in your LinkedIn messaging. Mine are all from Amex. Anyway. Like they think I can afford to have an Amex card. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so this link comes from a technology news website called VentureBeat and it is about Riff. Riff is an LA-based startup that calls itself an intelligent image technology company. It was founded by a bunch of industry tech veterans from studios like Disney, DreamWorks and Sony and recently emerged from stealth mode with the early whisperings of a product that they say could turn the $23 billion product placement market upside down. So for those playing at home, product placement is the advertising tactic of placing a branded object like a bottle of Coca-Cola into a scene in a movie or a television show. So Riff essentially lets advertisers place any virtual object into commercials and film. So typically when you're shooting film or television, which includes some kind of product placement deal, that product would physically be placed into the scene by the production's art department when they're dressing, dressing the set. Riff are teasing a product called Placer, which aims to instead bring product placement, I guess, into the post-production process. So they're aiming to use computer vision and machine learning to identify appropriate places within a scene, within a like a already shot video where virtual objects can be placed. And then it would work with brand owners like Coca-Cola, for example, to fashion an object that can be placed within that scene. What is interesting, though, is that because the object or product is being placed into the scene in post-production, the company's goal is to build out the tech and platform to make it super easy to replace that object with something else. So, for example, that bottle of Coca-Cola that you placed within the scene could easily be replaced with a bottle of Pepsi. It doesn't quite stop at product placement, though. The platform and the company's vision is all based on offering creators and advertisers a new flexible platform to seamlessly change, alter, or totally replace any object, person, or background in a video frame. To quote, intelligent images can be changed at any time, so different audience segments can experience a different product placement package in the same narrative story. So the goal is to scale the technology so different kinds of objects can automatically be placed and replaced in a video to appeal to different audiences depending on who's watching. So a very new form of targeted advertising, if you will. And the goal is for these product insertions to happen automatically rather than being a manual process. So from what I can understand, the tech is still being developed, so we may not see it being used seamlessly for a while yet. But what do you both think of this idea? Oh, so problematic. I, I mean, I, it is. It's so. It's totally disconcerting. But it's also like fascinating. Like if you re- try to remove all the like terrifying implications and and you know think about deep yeah exactly but I I mean it's it's extremely clever and it's absolutely fascinating the technology itself but yeah it's it's totally disconcerting and I think you know even though as you said it's still not fully realized because of the limits in the technology that we currently have at hand I have no doubts at all that the technology needed to do this convincingly will exist in the very near future and they also talk about how they can kind of go back to older films and kind of you know change kind of some of the things around which is inherent Well, yeah, that's what really interested me because when I think of, you know, television, like film and television, for example, like the wardrobe and the art department, like play such a massive role, massive role in like building like a really rich and believable world for a story to exist in and become part of like the cultural kind of like moment that a film exists. And so, you know, like one of the most wonderful things about Mad Men, for example, was the like 
the, the absolute care and attention to detail that they that went into the set design to create a really wonderful portrait of the 1960s that really drove the story. And so, and I think for me, it was interesting listening to your conversation that you had with Fraser a few episodes back where you were discussing how Netflix was starting to experiment with using a user's viewing habits to personalize and tailor the cover artwork that they actually display to you to help you in the decision-making process of choosing what to watch. And I guess like given that cinema and television hold such cultural relevance, like, I mean, how like oh, how do you think these mediums will change totally, if like we're able to like retroactively change the content or if the content is different like to depending on who's I, watching I take it. such issue with how this affects narrative. I mean, like, of course, this is already a, a problem with, you know, traditional product placement, but at least when product placement is a permanent one-time decision, the makers of the creative content can sort of take that into account somewhat. But undoubtedly, I mean, you know, all of the objects, as you said, in a scene play a role in telling a story about that character or that environment. And, and different products have different connotations that lead viewers to a very different understanding of the story. You know, for example, someone drinking San Pellegrino has a pretty different connotation to someone drinking home brand cola. And those things are really important to, to the story. And what I enjoy the most in film, and I think what most people enjoy the most, whether they know it or not, is the sort of subtle in-between-the-lines character development that is, you know, contributed to so heavily by that, you know, potentially a seemingly arbitrary set dressing that is actually carefully painstakingly put together and and I know that it's already the case but I hate the idea of advertising and film or TV being so heavily connected and yet so sort of concealed and, and inexplicit. Well, look, I mean, it, it's interesting because this is exactly what we're talking about in terms of new mediums for advertising, like to come in and potentially kind of work with, you know, work with cultural products in this way. I don't know, like some part of me feels like well, the kind of films that actually have product placement are totally different kind of beast and have totally different kind of financial outcomes and stakes and like you know it's it's a product more than kind of a piece of yeah, art. I don't know it's a little bit more formulaic you're I don't know I yeah. remember reading a piece once and I'll have to see if I can find it but there's films like you know the James Bond films and stuff where it's like so unbelievably like obscenely explicit that there's like millions of product placement deals within that you know they have these close-ups of the watch brand and then the car badge and whatever but I remember reading this piece and about how product placement is included in a lot of places, a lot of films, a lot of TV shows that I wouldn't have assumed. And it's done a lot more subtly and it's done in shows and movies that you would have maybe thought were less blockbustery. And Do you were know less, any off the top of your No, head? I can't remember. This is ages ago. I remember reading this, but it's, it's a pretty like, it's a sort of kind of a kind of sneaky underground. It feels a bit underbelly-ish to me, but I mean, look, I guess what gives me really gives me the shivers about all of this. And we touched on this when we we're talking to Fraser, but I think it's just that I don't know, it's further confirmation for me that we're heading towards an age where a shared reality is no longer a sort of consistent and, and infallible thing. And that's a really strange thing for me to wrap my head around because I think to some extent that notion of, of shared reality has always been a bit of a cornerstone of human life and society. I think, you know, traditionally someone who doesn't sort of experience that same shared reality is someone who's considered unwell or insane or, you know, that has issues. And, and there are already so many concerns that we touch on all the time about how some modern tech is is working to isolate us further and further. And this kind of thing, although it might seem, it, it seems er, like arbitrary what product I see in the background of a video versus what product you see in the background of a video, I think this is a real step towards kind of shattering that shared reality concept. And I find that really uncomfortable. 
Why do you always got to get so DNM here, Laura? Really bringing us down a notch on all of our pieces. <laughs> I told you I was feeling rough today. I'm going to bring it up just one level and, and just kind of conclude on, on the tech side of this piece, which I find the most fascinating. Oh, yeah. Because, um, Bianca, you might need to refresh my memory on how the mill is involved here. But they do mention that the mill, which is kind of the mega, mega kind of VFX commercial film kind of studio, a bit of everything. They produced this thing maybe last year or I think called the Blackbird, which is buddy crazy. It's basically a car that's a robot. It's like a robot car that doesn't have kind of an outside. It's kind of just a shell with kind of four wheels, basically. And what it allows them to do is kind of they can instead of to, to make car ads, they can just kind of they can just drive this kind of model through somewhere and they could put any car on top of it basically and they can and you know and it's it's completely seamless when you see what they do with it it's amazing and so I love that a company like The Mill, which kind of maybe 10 or 15 years ago was just doing kind of, you know, credit sequences or VFX and things like this. They're now starting to build kind of their own tech and they're very instrumental in Mm. this. And I think this is kind of a bit of an evolution of the Blackbird project where basically they're trying to kind of figure out, yeah, like how do you, it's, it's kind of like a natural step of augmented reality. It's like, so it's like, yeah, how do you kind of put this other layer of kind of content in kind of something that you're already seeing, but not being kind of a live piece. And that's kind of really the most interesting thing. And again, going back to kind of what Fraser said in the last episode that the tech is going to allow us to do this more seamlessly about how do you place an object there so it actually kind of looks real and it kind of and, and it gives you that illusion. Well, yeah, I couldn't help but notice that the CEO of Riff, he used to be an executive at NVIDIA who were in charge of some of the tech that we were talking about with Fraser that Fraser brought to us and some of the most interesting work in AI and, and augmented reality happening today, arguably the most. Well, look, there's definitely kind of scary parts of it, but I think as well, like if it can be kind of harnessed to make some creative projects kind of happen, like if, if it, you know, can boost the more artistic side of kind of filmmaking to allow more commercial opportunities for artists to do something, then I'm all for it. We will put the links to everything that we mentioned into our show notes. And I think that'll do us for this week. Thanks so much, B. Thank you. It's time for drum roll, please. Bianca, give us a drum roll. Long drum roll. On your end. Come on. Come on, Bianca. I don't hear you drumming. Yeah, there, there is. You go. <laughs> the brilliantly named thumbs up, thumbs down, shaka, maybe, maybe shaka no. Shaka hey, shaka who? <laughs> the time we dedicate each week to get the good, the bad, and completely petty off our chest. Why? Because that's just what we do every week now. Laura, what do you have for us? Thumbs up, thumbs down, or shaka? I got another thumbs up because I'm, you know, trying trying to be bossy. Woo. Now, my thumbs up is just for we've just come off a long weekend here in Melbourne. Footy. And Australians love a public holiday. We had a public holiday for the grand final. Which, thumbs down. Uh, thumbs down nah, for shush, Victorian public holidays. Shush. shush. You're just thumbs down because you're an employer. <laughs> but as an employee, bloody love a public holiday. Thanks for paying me to uh, drink beer and watch the footy, Jeremy. Yeah. For anyone outside of Australia, the grand final is, I guess, kind of our mini Australian Super Bowl. <laughs> We get a public holiday for it, which is the most Australian thing in the world. And I bloody love it. Thumbs up. Bloody unreal. (laughs) Bianca? My thumbs up is for alarm clocks. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Going way back to the 50s or something. I, okay, one of, I've talked on the podcast like 4,000 times before about how I really need to get in control of my phone use, my constant scrolling, all of these the hours that I spend on my iPhone 
every day. And when I, I moved house about four weeks ago and one of the things my, I guess like my rule to myself when I moved was that I was not going to have my phone in my bedroom and I bought myself a Philips Daylight alarm clock and it is, it has honestly changed my life. The sound, why do they have to make the sound so like horrible and invasive? Oh, mine's like, it's cute little birds chirping. It's it's actually like like a really nice way to wake up in the morning. Yeah, no, I really like it. And honestly, apart from last night where I I did wake up at three o'clock in the morning and got out of bed and yeah, jumped on Instagram, (laughs) I have had the best sleep that I've had in the last four weeks in years. So I do highly recommend anyone just buy a fucking alarm clock. Like I can't leave the phone out of the room. room I guess that's the case. Yeah. 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 Love it. Controversial. Are you guys on the new iOS update that gives you like the actual stats on how my phone keeps going off to tell me to update it, but I'm not, I want to get a new phone. So I'm just going to hold out for that. Man. So many amazing things this week. I mean, there's the share album. There's a new, there's a new share album, which is only ABBA covers, which is amazing, but that cannot be my thumbs up because we, we can't, we just have to talk about gritty. I know this means nothing to anybody in in Australia, but basically the Philadelphia Flyers um, released their new mascot uh, for their NHL team. So the Philadelphia Flyers are a National Hockey League team here in the United States. Which, um, Bianca, you lovingly refer to as the pamphlets, which is very funny. The Philadelphia, Philadelphia pamphlets. pamphlets. But yeah, they released their new mascot, which is, I just think, the best thing in the world. I've just Googled it. His name is Gritty. Um, actually just had a big um, expose, not expose, actually had a big piece on John Oliver last night about how they looked like um, two, you know, McDonald's Happy Meal characters. Like, had, It just um, looks like Animal like, from the Muppets. Well, it's anyway, Gritty, it just makes me so happy. And in these dark times, I think we all need a bit of Gritty in our life. So. Well, it reminds me, I mean, not in how it looks, but in how wonderful it is, just David Shrigley's mascot. Which one's that? So David Shrigley did a mascot for the Patrick Thistle Football Club, and it's the fucking funniest thing in the world. You have to like Google it right now, David Shrigley mascot. I will, and I will put it into our links as well as all the enhanced podcast content if you are listening to this on an enhanced player. But otherwise, that'll do us for this week. Another one in the books. Thank you so much, Laura. You are welcome. Thank you. Thank you, B. Thank you. Okay, now, as is my want every week, I'm going to read the outro and try to beat my previous time. I really don't know if it's in me this week, mostly because I don't know if Laura actually has the time. I so I'm yeah. sure that I do, <laughs> but I just am holding off telling you for a moment. Okay, I believe that the time to beat is 50 seconds, 16 milliseconds. <sighs> Jeremy, I believe in you. Okay. You ready? Count me in on three. Okay. Three, two, one. I'm Jeremy Wardson. She's Laura Tenbaker. She's Bianca Bramman. This has been Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. Our theme music is goodbye. Totally unrelated to our company, Melbourne-based musician, Jackie Winter. You can check out the stuff on soundcloud.com slash Jackie Winter. If you want more, Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. Our all of our shows and links well can be found at jackiewinter.gt.biz. Do receive all the links we talk about on the show each week in one neat little package. You can sign up for a podcast business. You can do that at tinyletter.com slash Jackie Winter. You can also find us mostly on Instagram at Jackie Winter. It's Jackie with the Y. Winter like the season. You can hit us up with any recommendations, feedback, questions, or comments at podcastjackiewinter.com. If you love it here, you can really help us out by subscribing, rating, and leaving us a comment on iTunes. Of course, recommending us to all your mates as well as iTunes. They can get the show wherever you get podcasts, including Spotify. 
find Stitcher or for the truth is directly from our website, jackmundrecogd.biz. Remember that it's an enhanced podcast. If you listen to using podcasts over Castro Castro, we'll be able to see the links in the articles as we're talking about them, as well as other schmink visual content as we wrap it on. It's like we're in there with you. It's like we're right there in the room with you, with you. And if you were for an advertising agent, the design studio, interested in our live extended version of Circle Open Tabs, be sure to check out our open tabs at Rodeo for more info. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week. Bye. Oh, shit. You beat it. What? But just really, yeah, forty nine seconds Fuck. and ninety five milliseconds, and that's impressive because we had to add Bianca's name into this. So mm-hmm. like, you know, that was it's that was long going name. Three I am concerned that absolutely no one will understand what the hell you said. So if you would like to email us anything, please send us an email at podcast at jackiewinter.com or check the podcast out, jackiewinter.givesyouthe.biz. That's the only important stuff. Amazing. Thank you again for listening, and we will catch you next week. Bye-bye. Works for me. Okie doke. Have you got a thing for, like, to call the room? You already put it in. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> okay, ready? Yeah. Hi. 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 <clears throat> Excuse me. <laughs>